Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Behold on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, welcome to our new listeners at Singapore Community Radio. Uh, thanks for checking us out on Twitch or you know, on the SGCR channel. Uh, if you want also, you know, you can listen back to the back archives of all of our episodes mm-hmm. uh, on our Mixcloud. Um, our, you know, if you're listening to the old episodes, you may notice a little audio, um, uh, low fineness in our audio. That's because we we didn't have mics back then. Uh, so <laughs> so, I uh, do forgive us. But you know, we have uh, we have you know bought mics subsequently, and now we are recording via ZenCaster due to COVID. So our audio con- uh, quality is considerably improved, uh, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm really enjoying the quality of our shows so far. For sure. I mean, I think ZenCaster has kind of been a, a godsend um, for what we're trying to do in times like this. I know, man. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with what Zencaster is, uh, do go Google them. It's, it's in my opinion, the, the best way to record podcasts uh, remotely. Way better than, you know, recording your Zoom conversations or your Google Hangouts or something. The audio quality is so much clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we are not, like, sponsored by Zencaster or anything. Yeah. But we are using them so often and for free. Keep in mind, it's free. That like I felt like I should give them a shout out. Like, Zencaster is the best, man. For sure, for sure. I mean, I don't think we would have it would have it wouldn't have been as easy going. I think if we haven't found Zencaster, you know. Definitely, yeah, uh, yeah. The editing would have been a lot more tedious and, and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, check out Zencaster if you're podcasters yourself or you wanna start a podcast. Uh, anyway, this is the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. Uh, if you don't know what Genre Equality is. Uh, we started out as a podcast slash channel covering all sorts of uh, genre things. Um, supernatural stuff, superhero stuff, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, you know, anything that, or, or animation even, that, that, that can be folded into the broad term that is genre, uh, basically, which is uh, fantasy filmmaking or narratives. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Behold, we decided to start this particular podcast because... There were other things we wanted to talk about beyond the realms of, of the fantasy and sci-fi and superheroes and all of that, you know. Yep. Uh, but for this episode of Behold, <laughs> considering, you know, that it is uh, what people like to call ooh, spooky season, uh, since, you know, it is the Halloween month, the mm-hmm. month of Halloween. Uh, Halloween's on October 31st, but generally around the world, uh, people take October as an excuse to watch horror films, to... You know, just to dress up and things like that. I don't think there will be any trick or treating this this year. You know, because of the world. Yeah. But uh, we can still watch and talk about horror filmmaking. And because we talk about horror so much on on genre equality, we thought we'll take a little different spin of on on horror in this in this particular episode of, genre, of Behold by talking about meta horror. Um, meta horror is horror <laughs> films about horror films. The, these are films that either deconstruct and dissect the tropes of horror filmmaking mm-hmm. or celebrate the tropes of, of horror filmmaking. And, 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 and in most of these instances, they do both of them at the same time. They, they lovingly parody them, but they're also sweet valentines to, to the beauty of, of horror filmmaking. Uh, and I think you'll find that um, in all four, of these, all four of the titles that we're talking about, you'll find that in common. We'll be talking about what I consider to be the best meta horror of all time. That will be our main topic. Mm. Uh, Drew Goddard's The Cabin in the Woods. Uh, secondly, we'll be talking about what I feel is to be the second best horror meta horror film of all time. <laughs> um, coming out from Japan, it is a full mockumentary. Uh, it is... Uh, 
one cut of the dead about a documentary film crew shooting well no it's about a, a film crew shooting a zombie film that uh, attacked by real zombies uh and then there's a twist later we all reboot it as, as we talk about <laughs> it and then we gotta talk about the granddaddy the godfather mm-hmm. of metal horror without which none of the modern metal horror would ever exist uh wes craven in basically introduced the concept with a nightmare on elm street 7 aka new nightmare uh which is about the crew of a you know, of the Freddy Krueger films being haunted by Freddy Krueger himself. Uh, and then subsequently, he polished up his, his idea uh, and made Scream, which uh, is the most iconic, I think, or at least the most famous yeah. uh, meta horror film of all time, like, which, you know, uh, very uh, finally broke down the rules of horror filmmaking uh, while, you know, kind of uh, lampooning it at the same time. Um, but let's begin with... with the best one uh, yeah. and, and my favorite of all time. Uh, it is The Cabin in the Woods, written by Buffy writers Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, directed by Drew Goddard, uh, who you may know from The Martian, uh, from um, Cloverfield, uh, and um, the showrunner of Daredevil season one. He's, does, he's done a bunch of things. He wrote and Lost as well. But I think like this is, this is uh, Drew Goddard's uh, signature piece. You know? mm-hmm. It is a 2011 American horror comedy uh, and it stars Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, way before he became Thor, uh, Anna Hutchinson, uh, Fran Kranz, uh, Richard Jenkins, and Bradley Whitford uh, in, in hilarious roles. Uh, <laughs> the, the plot follows a group of college students who retreat to a remote forest cabin where they fall victim to backward zombies uh, while technicians uh, in the background manipulate events from an underground facility. Uh, and if you kind of saw the initial marketing for the cabin in the woods the posters the trailers and you were not interested in watching it i totally understand you mm-hmm. this movie positions itself as the most generic horror movie of all time for good purpose uh <laughs> it starts out generic and then it starts to subvert its own tropes and then it peels back layers of what audiences expect from horror filmmaking mm-hmm. to make us complicit in what we want to watch and the horrors that, that, that we are watching like, via the technicians involved. Um, so, I, I mean, let, let, let's bring it back uh, because The Cabin in the Woods wasn't a very successful release yeah. for the reasons I mentioned. The Cabin in the Woods was actually filmed in 2009, was supposed to be released in 2009. It got delayed to 2010, then it got delayed to 2011. So it was a two-year delay, um, primarily because I think they thought it, it, it they couldn't market the film without giving away the twist, mm, which yeah. is a unique conundrum. You know, when you first saw trailers or, or posters or whatever for Cabin in the Woods, like, were you intrigued at first? Yeah, I think I okay. I didn't watch Cabin in the Woods when it first came out, right? Like, oh, it was only okay. way after um, the initial theatrical run that mm-hmm. I was it was recommended to me. Right, because I bought into the whole fact. Oh my god, no! This this is gonna be just another run of the mill kind of like horror thing. Yeah, even right? the title, you know, it's so it's a run of the mill. Yeah, yeah, and and I understand uh, completely. Like it is a very unique problem to have. I I, mm-hmm. I feel, uh, and I was totally totally the way that they marketed it, the way that you know the trailers were set up and all of that, like really did not appeal to me. And it was only much later after people took a chance with it and recommended it to me that I, mm. I, I went ahead and watched that. And I'm thankful that I did because like, you know, what what a what a small joy. Like really just to discover something of this caliber. Mm-hmm. Uh kind of like a hidden gem for people who, you know, um just love horror in general. Yeah. 
Definitely. I mean, for me, I wouldn't even have given it a chance if I didn't know who wrote and directed it. Mm. Um, you, you all know, like my my basis for all loving pop culture is is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, it it is my ground zero for for genre things. Uh, and Joss Whedon, the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, renowned actually for his uh, subversive take on genre, mm-hmm. uh, is the writer of this. And my favorite writer on Buffy and Angel, Drew Goddard, was the one who co-wrote this and directed it as well. Um, so I found it, you know, just based on name value alone. I know like Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard aren't, aren't like, you know, Steven Spielberg or whatever. So they're not going to draw the, the casual audience but they drew yeah. me la, and, and, and Buffy fans la, which aren't that many you know and, and Firefly fans and, and things like that uh, so I, I, I knew I was going to love it and I knew there was something different about it even before I watched it just because I know what it is la, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, who, uh, what the writers are capable of so like for, for fans of horror films I think Drew and Josh sort of wrote this as a quote-unquote um, loving slash hate letter to, to the genre. Um, the movie serves uh, as both a, a send-up to classic horror and also a criticism of what horror has become, you know, um, like the, the kind of uh, torture porn that the genre has become uh, popular with, you know, with titles like Saw and Hostel and Human Centipede and things like this, you know. Yep. Um, so I think that, that the best way to, to, to describe Cabin in the Woods is that it is a meta-horror movie attempting to revitalize the genre by taking all aspects of it apart mm-hmm. uh, but unlike scream which is a horror slasher movie with some self-awareness you know um cabin is a full-on deconstruction of the horror genre in all its forms yeah. um, it uses tired tropes in order to highlight how tired they are uh, but also on some level creatively defends their use by offering a clever explanation for why those tropes exist <laughs> uh-huh. in universe, you know, yep. um, kind of retroactively explaining every single horror movie from every country, you know, like um, for, for why the tropes exist in Japanese horror, why the tropes exist in American horror, etc. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's about as much as I can say about the film without giving it away. And I know a lot of people haven't seen The Cabin in the Woods. So, I mean, uh, part of this is I want, you, I want you to go watch it. So I don't want to give away what, what you know, the, the, the details of it. Like, other than to say that by, by even saying it's a meta horror film, I'm already giving it away. So, yeah. but, but I need to hook you with that, you know. But otherwise, I'm gonna, we're going to be talking a bit, uh, a bit more broadly about, about The Cabin in the Woods. Like, so... Um, what about you, Isa? What, what do you think about Cabin in the Woods? After you, you got over, you know, the initial, I'm not interested in this, your friends recommended it, and then you, you went to watch it, uh, like, uh, did, did it blow your mind, or, or were you surprised by what you saw? Uh, I think, okay, so they don't wait very long within the movie itself to start subverting stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think almost immediately, if we look at the kind of the opening sequence and how that jumps straight away into a very kind of lighthearted discussion uh, in 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 uh, in in the first scene, you know, yeah. and the kind of bantering that goes on there, like they straight away it sets the tone. That, that, look, okay, you thought with how the opening sequence works, this is this is how it's gonna be, right? But immediately it cuts into something like totally unexpected, and that sets the tone. Uh, and that 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 definitely helped moving forward uh, with yeah. the film itself, right? And they slowly build it from there, and it it feels as though that um, you have already been uh, primed to have a bit of distance from what's actually happening on screen. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, because yeah. you're you're aware that you know it's not just but misty eye and so on and so forth. Of course, the actual mystery of it is very slowly uh, unveiled in very clever ways, I must say. And uh, because of that, uh, you know, you're slowly kind of let in. But I think from the get go, they do establish the fact that this isn't a run of the mill horror film, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're going to run through all the beats and they do so extremely well. Uh, but they're not going to, you know, just run through the beats and deliver. De- de- just that those beats itself, right? They've established from the beginning that this is going to be slightly different. Uh, if you start to pay attention, you start to realize certain things and I uh, hope you enjoy the ride. So, yeah, that's pretty much what I felt my first experience of it was. Um, mm-hmm. I think upon... Uh, I just recently re- rewatched it just to refresh it for the podcast. Nice. Um, it really is very tight in terms of the way that they, they pull everything together. And mm-hmm. there's, there is just enough like question marks surrounding some of the possible details that they could have filled you in with, right? But they don't. Uh, yeah. That kind of like adds to the mystery of it on like a totally different level outside of, you know, unpiecing what's happening uh, mm-hmm. to the actors and all of that uh, and, and what's going on in the greater storyline. So, yeah, I totally love what they've done. I, I think like watching it it has great rewatch value, despite mm-hmm. the fact that you've already watched it once and you know what's going to happen, right? Yeah, it's this, not reliant on a twist, right? Yeah, it's not reliant on a twist at all. In fact, knowing the twist makes you notice more things. And it's, it's mm-hmm. one of those films, right, that um, I think no matter how many times you watch it, uh, it, it brings something more to the table. And that's just testament to the kind of quality that we have. Uh, yeah. I do feel that the... the uh, what I would enjoy the most is showing the film to people who haven't watched it before. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like um, the cabin in the woods is more than like an exercise in, in self awareness, or it's more than you know like scary movie, which is the a spoof. Yeah. Um, it's a wickedly smart um, hybrid mutation, you know, um, and it's an exercise in 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 metafiction that while providing grisly fun. Uh, never dis- distances the viewers. Um, it is entertaining while asking uh, the same question of the viewers and the characters alike. You know, yeah. why why do you come to a place you knew all along that was going to be so dark and dangerous? You know, it 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 kind of makes horror audiences complicit in what they're watching. You you, <laughs> you know what you're gonna get. You know what the beats are. You know what the tropes are. Why yeah. are you watching this? You know, and and the characters themselves once they realize what's happening to them, um bite back at, at, at the horror audience. In, in this case, like our, hor- our horror audience proxies of, uh, of the technicians in the secret underground lab, right? Yep, you know, yep. you know uh, like, why are you doing this to us? You know, um, it is, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Like, it, it's a fantastic poke in the eye for, for our horror movie expectations, you know, and, and it subverted expectations uh, that accompany the, 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 the genre to such a great effect, you know, and it's a self-conscious twist uh, on, on one of the... Ugliest uh, stepchildren of the horror genre, like the, mm-hmm. the, co- the co-ed uh, campsite massacre, which is what the, <laughs> the cabin in the woods uh, implies. Uh, it's, yeah. Drew Goddard is brilliant. I mean, I, to be honest, like a lot of the elements in the film uh, I have seen in Buffy. Like they, they, they kind of recycled some ele- most of the film from plots in Buffy uh, into, you know, obviously a different concept. Yeah. Uh, and I, I didn't mind that because I know a lot of people don't watch Buffy and, and if this encourages you to dig into what else uh, Joss Whedon has done and what Drew Goddard has done, I mean, primarily this is Drew Goddard's film. Uh, then, yeah, you, you should you should definitely uh, 
check out everything that these two have done, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, love the cliches that form the backbone of the <laughs> film's humor uh, and, cre- and creativity, but also love the way that the cliches are defended, you know. As I said, it's a loving letter and a hate letter, you know. It's a Valentine yeah. and deconstruction. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a place to worship when the go- gods of horror. Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. Um, I. Oh man, I I wish we could talk a bit more about like going into the whole thing, but I think we should just keep it, uh, spoiler free enough for people to be keen to watch it because that's after all what we're recommending. Uh, uh yeah, I I I definitely agree, man. I'm I'm a little sad that this film, the, it, I mean, it's critically acclaimed. Like literally every critic who watched it ended up loving it, love. But it is a tough sell. Like every review I read back in the day just couldn't explain what makes it special <laughs> you know it's it's so difficult to, to sell the film you know like like you know the the sixth sense could be sold without the twist yeah uh, but but this this couldn't uh, you know um yeah. fantastic stuff what, what do you think about you know the the kind of commitment to to that right like the fact that they didn't spoil anything they didn't give away the whole premise because like it will ultimately spoil the movie as opposed to the kind of trailers we get today where the entire movie basically gets contained within the trailers itself, right? Even for horror. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I respect the restraint in the marketing. I respect the, the adherence to, obviously, Joss and Drew did not want their movie to be given away. La, so the, the marketing was as generic as you could make it. Uh, but at the same time, also, it's, uh, it's an art versus commerce conundrum. La, like, how are you going to sell this movie? What makes it fun? Yeah. What makes it special? Uh, audiences are not going to know that watching the marketing material. Um, I think the movie has taken on a life of its own since then through word of mouth. As you were saying, this is how you got into the film, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the word of mouth, the DVD sales, the, the streaming numbers have been very good. Uh, especially, you know, during Halloween time when, when people are looking for uh, something deeper and something a little less uh, cliche to, to watch uh, for horror. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a very good film for wise-dub viewers, those who, those who know the classic horror tropes and, and, and stuff like that, you know. Um, it's, it's a bit like uh, the, the perfect movie for, for horror hipsters. Like. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think, I think more, most recently, um, a film called Split uh, hit, his, uh, hit its twist uh, very well during marketing. Yep. Uh, yep. But again, like Split could be sold without, uh, without the, the connection to um, the, the, the M. Night Shyamalan verse, I guess. Uh, which in itself is a spoiler. I'm sorry if you haven't watched uh, Split or Glass. But it's, it's, I'm sure you all know by now like, it's, it's connected to um, Unbreakable. So yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> No, nah, I think I think it's okay. I, I don't think too many. Yeah, it, it's because I, the marketing for glass like pretty much gave away the twist to split lah. So I mean, yeah lah. Uh, yeah. I I don't think I give away anything there. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's an issue for sure. Uh, yeah, but def- but split is definitely one of the rarities, right? Like uh, time and time again, like we we get spoiled by the trailers, you know. And you got to kind of ask yourself, um, it it's uh, again art versus commerce, as you so plainly put it. Uh, but oh man, I I sometimes like these days. I really just completely avoid trailers. If I if it's something I really want to watch and mm-hmm. I'm excited about, I tend to just like skip trailers altogether because they don't increase my excitement, you know. Mm. And I tend to be, I tend to be okay if it, I'm late to watching something and people are talking about spoilers. Like I I still want to see it for myself, so it isn't so much of a problem. I'm relatively, I, I'm not as wary of spoilers per se, but there's something about the trailer spoiling the movie for me that just is kind of irksome, you know? 
Yeah, man, hundred uh, percent agree on that. Um, so uh, like, it's a it's a blessing and a curse, lah. Um, the cabin in the woods is uh marketing ploy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but I think in the end, once you have seen a film, and and I am telling you that this film is really really good. Like, forget the generic setup. It is supposed to be as generic as possible. That yep. is the point. Yeah. You know, um, what I can say is that it is a fiendishly clever brand of meta-level genius, you know. Um, it is a, a, a pulpy and insightful send-up of horror films that just elicits uh, as many chuckles as it does uh, gasps. Um, it, 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 it comes to not only praise and, and, uh, and you know, disqualify the slasher, uh, zombie and gore fest of yore, but, you know, critique them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, constructive criticism, I might add. Uh, um, elaborating on, on their elements and archetypical figures, uh, even while searching for a way to put them to novel use. Um, I, I suppose the danger of such a lofty, ironic approach is that um, everything in the film uh, appears with ready-made uh, quotation marks around it. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, but but by then the, the audiences will have uh, picked up on on the infectiously goofy vibe. You know, because you know more than just being an intellectual exercise, it's also goofy fun. Um, it's it's a great enterprise that is very sprightly. Uh, it doesn't take itself too seriously, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time has some very smart things to say about about the genre. Like I, Kevin the Woods came for me at a time when horror was at its lowest, uh, if, if I'm to be honest, you know. Um, as a horror fan growing up, I, you know, I watched the old classic monster movies from the 30s, the cheese from the 50s, the slashers from the 80s, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Horror and at the beginning of the 2000s and the late 90s uh, was at the saddest, most despicable, most like exploitative <laughs> point uh, that I've ever seen in genre. Like, it, made me, it made me embarrassed to be a horror fan, you know. Um, obviously, recently with, uh, with the new quote-unquote prestige horror or yeah. of, of A24, you know, the, the, the witch and, and Get Out and um, Midsommar and Hereditary, uh, the Babadook, uh, It Follows and things like that, right? Like horror has rejuvenated like, with smarts, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that was only recently. Was, the, these, these movies are only within the last five to six years. When The Cabin in the Woods came out, right, I felt, I felt once again proud to be a horror fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, did, did 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 you think that horror was going down a very like lazy route, you know, in the in the early two thousands and the mid two thousands before this film came along? I, I okay, I can't really recall just how many horror films I watched during that period. Mm-hmm. If anything, I feel like I barely watched any horror, mm-hmm. um, just because I felt like everything just came out of a factory, right? Like everything yeah. the same beat and everything so on and so on. Which is probably why I didn't watch Captain the Woods when it came out. Right, mm. you know, at past a certain point, I think like you maybe have three stories out there during that period of time, and they just rehashed to no end. Right, you either got your it's a monster thing, it's a a demon thing, it's a celestial supernatural thing, you know, or, or and, possession, you know, yeah, possession, and then you have your kind of like slasher thing, right? And mm-hmm. just those just get recycled and recycled, like same beats, just different actors, maybe slightly different settings, nothing clever about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And they wanted to appeal to what they thought was was the you know the big demographic at that point in time. What would make them the most money? So yeah. when Kevin and Woods comes along and they market it along the exact same lines, right? Uh, I'm I'm just not interested because I mm-hmm. I at that point in time I thought I had seen it all. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, like we are living in in a kind of horror renaissance right now, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Just with everything that's going on, you know, um, with with uh, Haunting of Blind Man just coming out as well. 
mm-hmm. uh, on Netflix to coincide with with this whole Halloween period. Like, there's so much good stuff going on in horror. It's just like insane uh, how rejuvenated it's become, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's easy for us to kind of um, trace it back to what Kevin the Woods has, has established, right? Like, in mm-hmm. a time like that, when mm-hmm. everything was just kind of meh. You know, as we as we as as things often tend to become after a while, um, you know, it took a bold step. Um, they didn't do well at the box office, uh, mm-hmm. but they did it for I I guess a longer term, you know, uh, mm-hmm. some longer term ambitions, and I think it's paid off. Yeah, man. Like, um, I, at, at the same time, you know, it 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 did stay on the shelf for a couple of years, but. Uh, releasing it the same year that Thor was released was very smart. Um, mm. Because Chris Hemsworth wasn't a name in 2009. Chris Hemsworth was a name in 2011. So yeah. they, they, they got a big star out of it. But yeah, at the same time, I do see I do see horror as pre-Cabin in the Woods and post-Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods was the definitive uh, full stop to uh, all the cliches and the tropes that we've seen prior to 2011, like this was this was the end game. There's no there's nowhere that you can take these things anymore. You know, yeah, yeah. Like the the films that come after this have to realize, uh, have to do something else. You know, you, yeah. you can't do all these tired things anymore. The Kevin Woods has already deconstructed it. They they showed you why it's smart, why it's not, why it's expectative, why it's fun. You know, um, all the different archetypes. You know, uh, so I think the arty horror films of today. Uh, was really kind of um, galvanized uh, by, by by the cabin in the woods mm. you know, by by that this film said like enough you know yeah enough if enough of this type of things let's move on la. and and to that effect I think it 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 really did la. um well, one of the things that the horror films today have realized that horror doesn't mean doesn't necessarily mean scary yeah like there are, there are different kinds of horror existential horror familial horror things that you know hereditary and and haunting of hill house are, are, are playing you know um if you if you look at one of the earliest horror stories ever told frankenstein right yeah Fra- frankenstein by mary shelley isn't scary in the way that we think that horror movies have trained us to to think that you know Horror stories have to be scary, like Horror yeah. movies in the seventies, eighties, nineties, right? Yeah. Like Frankenstein was about uh, a larger social message, you know, about about outsiders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 horror, the horror of being the outsider, the horror of oppression, the horror of xenophobia, things like that, you know. So I think like the the current crop of horror movies aren't actually doing anything different. They're just hearkening back to what made horror special in the first place. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it's it's. It's the difference between like focusing on a series of jump scares, right? No matter how clever they may possibly be that we got back then. Because everything was about the jump scare. Uh, to, you know, a much deeper, a much more base horror that we all kind of live in uh, mm. perpetually, right? And, and, and um, you know, kind of letting those things kind of bubble to the surface on the screen. Right, yeah. so it, the horror lives a lot less uh, within that few moments where something pops out on the screen, but mm-hmm. it's a much more, it's it's a much deeper kind of dread, right? That that yeah. they're pulling from, and yeah. uh, I I think it's an important. I think like horror like that makes us kind of reflect and examine upon our own lives and our, the things that we kind of take for granted, mm-hmm. you know, in um in 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 our day to day, right? Yeah. And there's a there's a type of catharsis there that is much more satisfying and much more pleasurable than uh, what you get from, you know, your run-of-the-mill 90s horror flick. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like '90s horror flicks, or to a certain extent, late '80s horror flicks. Uh, you know, like yeah, there are some gems in there. You know, the Halloween one. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Fre- Freddy Krueger one, Nightmare on Elm Street one. The problem was like Nightmare on Elm Street, like you know, four and five, and Halloween mm-hmm. four and five, and Jason versus Freddy, and things like that. You know, uh, that that's when it started becoming a parody of himself without yeah. you know. Without actually becoming a parody of himself, lah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, Kevin Woods, super highly recommended. Uh, a great full stop to an era of terrible horror. Uh, that exposes it, but at the same time, it's kind of a love letter to it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, do check out the Kevin Woods. Uh, it's available, you know, on on all sorts of VOD platforms on iTunes, on on Amazon. Uh, if you have Hulu, you can stream on Hulu as well. Um, yeah, I mean, great film by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, and and of course, like if you if you love this, go check out Drew Goddard's other stuff. Go check out Joss Whedon's other stuff besides the Justice League, yeah. uh, which I still say to this day is not his fault. He was given three months to redo that film. I mean, what you gonna do, right? Well, what they're gonna do is a Snyder cut, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening next year. Uh, but yeah, I think Joss Whedon ate a, a shit ton of uh, crap for that, which I don't think he deserved. La. Yeah. He, he, he took on a, a last-minute job and tried to salvage something unsalvageable. Um, anyways, we're moving on to uh, what, I, what I consider to be like the modern era's best meta-horror example. Mm. It is um, directed and written by Shinichiro Ueda. It's called One Cut of the Dead. Uh, although the Japanese translation of the title actually means don't stop the camera, which uh, it's actually quite funny. Um, if you watch the film. <laughs> um, it is a 2017 Japanese zombie comedy film. Um, it was released in Singapore in 2018. I caught it at a Japanese film fest uh, at... Um, man, I forgot where I caught it. Probably the projector, right? It has to be. Yeah. Um, and it is uh, made on, amazingly, the low budget of 3 million yen, which is only 25,000 US dollars. That is nothing, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with, with, with a cast of unknown actors, you know, um, the film opened in Japan and, and found international box office success for a budget of 3 million yen. It ended up grossing 28 million yen in total. Uh, sorry, sorry, uh, three point one two billion yen yeah, in total, yeah. and 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 twenty eight million US dollars uh, overall. You know, um, universal acclaim from critics, uh, commercial acclaim, and and man, this movie really deserves it. It, it follows um, the cast and crew of a low budget zombie film called One Cut of the Dead, uh, and and they are shooting at an abandoned water filtration plant. Um, the director, uh, inside the film, not the director of the film, the director in the film, Higurashi, um, argues with actors uh, and eventually abandons them. Suddenly, uh, a real zombie apocalypse uh, happens uh, and then begins to the delight of Higurashi, who insists that the camera operator must continue filming because, you know, this is gold. We have to capture this for, for our film. Yeah. And, and with this movie, I'm okay with giving away the twist because it's not, um, it's not dependent on the twist. Yeah, you enjoy it. Yeah whether you know it or not. So, it begins with a film crew shooting a zombie apocalypse. A zombie apocalypse happens. Suddenly, you know, that's the first half of the film, which amazingly takes place in a 37-minute one-take sequence that is just hilarious. Yeah. The second part of the film is about a full documentary. So, they, they were planning to shoot this. So, it's about a film. They're shooting a film about a zombie apocalypse that attacks a real film crew. So, it's a film within a film within a film. film. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, and and it is, so the, the second part of it is more about the bureaucracy of filmmaking, how they how they are ta- getting funding, the casting, the the ineptitude of certain actors, you know, and and things like that. Um, what I really loved about One Cut of the Dead is that 
number one, it does this thing that I very rarely see in comedy, which I call the reverse punchline. Mm. Um, the first act of the film, the 37-minute incredible one-take sequence, right? Gives you punchlines for setups that would later be delivered, you know? Yeah. So it, it gives you, like, the end of the joke, and then you get the beginning of the joke towards the end of the film. <laughs> it, it's really brilliant. It, it, it's, a, it's a great way, uh, such a different way to set up jokes, you know? Like, you know, the, the guy who was squatting in the corner, right? You don't yeah. know what he was doing there, you know? <laughs> That's why he's a drunk and everything. Um, secondly, also, it's such a great celebration of DIY filmmaking. Mm, it, it, it's such a beautiful, um, a, a beautiful look at some people coming together, uh, independent filmmakers coming together, or independent artists. Like, it doesn't necessarily need to be about filmmaking. Independent artists coming together and, and creating art. Um, but art doesn't necessarily need to be genius. The art doesn't necessarily need to be good. You know, but it it, it the art does mean something to these people. They put so much of their heart and soul and effort into it. Yep. And, and a lot of the joy of art is in the process of creating the art, you know. And One Cut of the Dead is, is really such a, a beautiful love letter to independent filmmaking as well, a DIY mm -hmm. filmmaking, you know. Such a, it, it, an infectious fun uh, and, and, and kind of virtuous, virtuosic in terms of its filmmaking as well on such a low budget, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like to... If, if you stay to the end of the credits, you get to see fil a film crew behind a film crew behind no, a film crew trying to hide each other. Yeah. You know, th those, those are three film crews, right? Uh, and, and then, of course, the, the making of film crew who are behind the third film crew, you know? So it's, it's, it's mind-blowing like, in terms of the choreography and, and, and the setup and everything. Uh, but also just in terms of comedic beats, uh, it's, it's such a delight. It's one of the best comedies I've seen in the last five years also, I think. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's something that, you know, directors like Joss Whedon and Edgar Wright would, would, would really love. Yeah. Uh, but just, you know, done on, a, on an ultra-low budget. Uh, what do you think about One Cup of the Dead, which I think you only saw recently? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I remember you invited me to watch it um, on the release, right? So you, mm. you caught it at the film festival and you told me to watch it, but I only watched it recently. Yeah. Uh, wow wow I mean like it is I, I was sold by the premise right uh, which you were mm -hmm. already extremely excited to share about uh, yeah. but to see it happen is is oh man it is so good it is so clever and it it it, it pulls on my uh, all sorts of like kind of heartstrings right having been involved in in some for, uh, certain forms of, of, of filmmaking uh, you know DIY kind of like music video Come stuff and, and like school film stuff and all of that you know, like you have so many of those things that are identifiable uh, and, and you can kind of relate to it in that. But just mm -hmm. the way in which everything unfolds is it, so brilliant, right? Because mm -hmm. the first 37 minutes and everything that happens there, like it has all the hallmarks of kind of like indie, low, low budget filmmaking, right? You mm -hmm. know, sometimes you, it feels clumsy, things, things are, you know, drag on for a bit too long and all of that. But every single one of those things have an explanation. Yeah. Right, and every single one of those things has an explanation that you are probably not expecting. Yeah, you know? So yeah. the way it just continually keeps resolving itself as they reveal what's going on mm -hmm. is it's brilliant. It's so brilliant, right? And it feels like a lot of the the times when you know you you get happy accidents on set, right? Like for example, the camera accidentally kept rolling and you managed to get something really great, yeah. right? Uh, and and. It it feels as though the second part of the movie feels as though you are getting a peek into that kind of like uh su the the surprise and and just kind of like the overall like uh, uh elation that comes from having happy accidents, 
you know that I don't think I've ever seen in any other movie right even movies about making movies don't hit this kind of like notes um, mm. or, um yes. consistently at least right but man one kind of the dead like every time there's something that you think you notice that's like oh okay you know it's small budget not enough single take it it can't be helped yeah they they find a way to explain it they find a way to 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 add some sort of comic relief to it you know and it's 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 so good you know it's so satisfying to watch yeah yeah the the reverse engineering of so many of its best gags you know um such unusual comedy setup you know in delivering the punchline first and giving the setup later uh it's it's amazing like it it and you as you mentioned, it sparkles with the infectious, you know, come on, everyone, let's put on a show, um, enthusiasm uh, that, that has served uh, movies well. Uh, there are a lot of movies about making movies. There are a lot of horror movies about making horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of zombie movies. And I think on all three levels, you know, on all the let's put on a show movies let's, uh, of, of meta horror yep. and just uh, as a plain zombie film, I think it elevates the all three genres, you know, uh, with, its, with its delight, uh, with, its, with its fun, with its smarts, with it's a uh, beautiful gag. Mm. You know, um, it's it's it's. I mean, it's kind of a contrived film, but it's easy to forget to forgive the contrivances uh, yeah. because of because of its genius, you know, and and how funny it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, like seemingly unimportant details in in the in the film's beginning and sluggish middle section, you know, kind of kind of blossom into killer jokes, you know, like just thirty minutes later. Yeah. Um. Yeah. What 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 a great movie! And if you haven't seen it, you know, please do go watch it. Like it's it's one of the best uh, meta horror films. I, I personally have ever seen and just one of the best movies about making movies I've ever seen, period. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, man. Uh, any any concluding thoughts before before we move on from One Cup of the Dead? Oh, uh, no, no. I, I think that's that's more than enough, right? To, to kind of get people to, to pay attention to this. Because, I yeah. mean, like, there's so many small things and we could go on and on about, like, every little thing and the way that the characters are developed and how they fit the archetypal, you know, roles as both characters and as actors as well. And it, it's quite... It's quite crazy uh, how it's done. Uh, maybe we should we should shout out the, the short film that they did as well. Yes, uh, One Cup of the Dead, uh, during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the creators and crew of One Cup of the Dead, led by Shinichiro Ueda, released uh, a quasi-sequel to One Cup of the Dead called One Cup of the Dead Mission Remote. Uh, it features the return of the fictional cast and crew of this independent film company. Um, they are tasked with making not a zombie film this time. They are tasked with making a pilot for a true crime documentary series, you know, you, yeah. you've seen a lot of those on 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 Netflix, for example, that type of thing. So they they're trying to film a pilot for a true crime documentary. They got the budget, they got everything lined up. Suddenly, COVID hits. So the producers are telling them, you got to make the pilot still. You got a deadline, but you got to make the pilot over Zoom. You know, so they're doing it remotely, lah. Yeah. Um, and and during that period, there was a flourish of quarantine produced short films. You know, like Zoom call ensembles of of sitcoms and stuff like that, like Parks and Rec, and and you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing, I think, was more creative than one cut of the dead take on on Zoom film Zoom filmmaking. You know, yeah. Like in in the in the infancy of the genre, you know, where all different types of shows were making episodes via Zoom. You know, one cut of the dead already parodied it yeah like in the yeah. beginning <laughs> it's so it's so brilliant to uh yeah i mean like it's it's crazy how how just clever it is right like i just 
uh, I mean, okay, so I, I watched the movie and then I went and watched the short film, right? And I'm just like, how do you how do you come up with some of these things, right? For you to look at something so recent, so astutely, yeah. right, and break it down and 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 make something out of it, it's it's just a joy, really. It is. Yeah, I mean, you look at when the when this uh, short film came out in April, right? Yeah. I mean, COVID didn't really hit until March, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's. Like in, in a month, you know, they already foresaw that this was going to be a thing. Yeah. And they were already ready to, to parody it, you know, one cut of the dead style. <laughs> uh, but still, at the same time, like it's not just mocking the fact that this is the only way to do films and, and mocking the limitations of it. But it's also, once again, a love letter to, to creativity via limitations, you know. Yeah. Like you, you don't have money, you don't have, li- you don't have resources, you don't have locations. We can still make art, you know. Let's not, let's not limit ourselves to... To, to all these things, you know, like art can be made. Uh, sure, it's cheesy. It may be bad. Maybe it's not good. <laughs> but it, that shouldn't stop me from trying to make art, you know. And, and that's what I love about the One Cup of the Dead, quote-unquote, franchise, like, you know, yeah. where, where they, they can still um, mock all these things while at the same time celebrating it like, and, and encouraging filmmakers to, to do what they do. Like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Highly recommend One Cup of the Dead as well as the companion short film that you can find on YouTube. Yeah, it's called Mission Remote. You can find it on uh, YouTube. Uh, and One Half of the Dead is available on all sorts of streaming services. Uh, you can probably, a lot of you have Amazon Prime, so you can probably uh, get it there. Uh, yeah, so that was One Cup of the Dead. I think the final two films have to be like talked about together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really interesting because I was talking about like, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, right? The duff of quality horror. Yeah. Um, and I, it seems to me that Wes Craven was feeling a little bored himself with, with what horror had become. Yeah. Or, or what his um, over uh, has become as well, you know. Uh, and so in the year 19... Man, what year was it? 1994. Yeah. Yeah, was, uh, was uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare, you know. Um, so if, if you stop following the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, uh, I don't blame you. Um, uh, there were there were a lot of them you know Um, of course the Nightmare on Elm Street 1 classic the debut of Freddy Krueger probably one of the best uh, supernatural horror films of all time you know Uh, and then it suddenly kind of kind of became it started to recycle itself as as a lot of franchises do number 2 number 3 I suppose number 4 was not bad but Mm. then number 5 and then number 6 you know Uh, I I particularly love 4 which was uh, Dream Warriors Um, yeah but then Wes Craven, who hasn't directed Nightmare on Elm Street since the first film, came back for Nightmare on Elm Street 7. And he came up with a radical premise, especially for its time. Keep mm-hmm. in mind, this was, this was 1994. Um, and he, he came up with the idea that what if the crew of the original Nightmare on Elm Street you know, was haunted by Freddy Krueger? What if Wes Craven was a character in the film <laughs> and he was only making the Nightmare on Elm Street films to to basically satisfy this demonic entity of Freddy Krueger, you know, and yeah. the, the second the second he stops making them, Freddy Krueger starts coming to life, you know. So he has to keep making Nightmare on Elm Street films, you know, and 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 this movie brought back the original cast uh, from uh, from the first film, you know, um, specifically um, Heather Langenkamp yeah. uh, re- reprises her role as Nancy Thompson, uh, of course, you know. Um, Freddy Krueger himself, uh, what's his name, Robert Englund, mm-hmm. uh, portrayed uh, Robert Englund. 
the actor and also portrayed uh, Freddy Krueger himself uh, again. Uh. Um, this was the beginning of Wes Craven's meta horror phase. And he was trying something new here. And, and keep in mind, this was the mid-90s, early 90s. Yep. And, and, and stuff like this was just being done, was not being done you know, at all. Like this type of meta horror is so new that, yeah, I mean, I, this is not a perfect film. There were a lot of missteps. There are some boring moments to it as well. Uh. Mm-hmm. But I do, ha- I do have to talk about Wes Craven's New Nightmare because I think any discussion of meta horror has to pay tribute to like the OG of it, like, which, is, which is this film, you know, yeah. this, this meta horror take on Nightmare on Elm Street, which is so radical. Um, you have not seen uh, New Nightmare until quite recently, right? Yeah, so I, uh, I've seen the original. And mm. then uh, I've seen Dream Warriors, uh, yeah. but that was it, right? Like New Nightmare, completely had absolutely no idea it existed. Yeah. Um, and of course, I think it came out at a time where, yeah, just basically, uh, it wasn't on my radar. Mm. So to to put it in in kind of context, right, with everything around. So I watched New Nightmare recently, together with mm. all the other movies that we've been talking about. Yeah. For this particular episode, so it's been a meta horror binge for me. Mm-hmm. And it kind of it helps me to see how seminal New Nightmare was mm-hmm. in its time, because like without someone taking the first step, without Wes Craven taking the first step, and saying, "Hey, you know what we need is we need more horror movies in our horror movies," right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and without him kind of doing that, we don't get Kevin in the Woods, we don't get Scream, we don't get yeah. Kevin in the Woods, we don't get One Cut of the Dead, right? Like yeah. I don't think you. Um, as great as Cabinet of the Woods is, as great yeah. as Wonka of the Dead is, if New Nightmare didn't exist, I yeah. don't think they would have been able to make those movies. Mm. Right? Because it would have changed uh, horror as we know it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't doubt that after a period of time, you know, an aspiring author, uh, an ambitious author would come along and say like, you know what, we're done with this, let's go and do something else. It could have been Cabinet of the Woods. Right, mm-hmm. but I think uh, West Craven got there first, and yeah. it is important for that reason. I, I definitely don't think it's a perfect movie for sure. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, if anything, I think Scream has so much more polish. Uh, yeah. But it also means that some of the ideas that he started to explore in New Nightmare get left behind, because with Scream he decided to stick to a particular direction. You know, uh, which became what it became, like in in all its incantations, uh, incarnations after that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I only caught it recently, and I think uh, with what I've been watching, you know, it definitely makes sense. Like you can't take away from the fact that like New Nightmare established meta horror uh, for what we know and kind of love today. I think. Yeah, New Nightmare established it. Scream popularized it. Uh, other films that Wonka of the Dead and The Cabin in the Woods have uh, taken it to new levels, lah. Basically, you know. Yeah. But but the the ground floor was New Nightmare, and and it's it's a slasher that turns well worn tropes into brand new tricks. Mm. Um, there, there's a whole lot of good natured frills, you know. But New Nightmare is largely, I feel, an auteur being very angry at what his franchise has become. Yeah. Um, in explaining the concept of behind the plot, you know, that there exists this ancient evil entity that can only be stopped by a story powerful enough to contain it, you know, like, uh, like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Craven kind of openly discusses the fact that his own creation, right, has been stuffed into this glossy corporate box until it's suffocated, you know, with, with filmmakers that, that have taken over the mantle and, and really not 
not lived up lah, or not yeah. honored the the first film's legacy. You know, um, the the quote was, you know, the problem comes when the story dies lah, as Craven, starring as Wes Craven, tells uh, <laughs> Langenkamp in the film. You know, yeah. Uh, and 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 that can happen a lot of ways. It can get too familiar to people, or somebody waters it down to make it an easier sell, or maybe it's just so upsetting that society. Uh, has banned it outright. Yeah. Um. But Craven doesn't point fingers without also taking a deep look at himself. You know, mm-hmm. New Nightmare is essentially the filmmaker's dissection of his own work, uh, putting the horror genre under a microscope and and questioning the effect its blood, guts, and gore have on the world. Um. Throughout the movie, you know, young Dylan, uh, the the son of uh, Nancy, uh, oh, sorry, Heather Langenkamp, yeah. uh, who plays Nancy, is compulsively drawn to screens, uh, playing the original Nightmare on Elm Street, lah. Uh, as he falls further into Freddy's uh, real-life spell, uh, creating an image of horror movies quite literally warping uh, a malleable child's mind. You know, mm-hmm. um, this is of course paired with the fact that a horror movie icon is actually trying to escape into reality, like to murder him. Um, Craven puts the idea right into the dialogue, you know, of of the hyper-judgmental uh, Doctor Hefner, you know, who tells Dagan Kemp, I'm, "I'm convinced these films can tip an unstable child over the edge." You know, so there's a lot of self-reflection here about what his films have have mean and and what society thinks of them and yeah. its effect on society i think but more than just like poking outwards the poking inwards makes it good as well mm, yeah definitely definitely i think there's so many great lines in the film right yeah. that on first pass for for people who i think for, for on first pass for people who watched it when it was released in 1994 they mm. might not have understood what it meant you know yeah. uh, because yeah. Again, first first time meta horror, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, those are gold, you know. I, I think for the, to have those lines, like for Wes Craven to put those lines in as a sort of like self reflexive look at himself and what he has done and what he has become, right? It is uh, it's so good. Like, how mm-hmm. do you get to that point, right, in your career, whereby you've done something um, with your with your art? Right, and it's it's been ten years, and you're just like, you know what? I need to, to stop this and do something different, uh, and and look at it in its entirety, right? Mm-hmm. And then like see where we go from here. Like I think it's such a rare opportunity for a creator like Craven, uh, to have a career that allows that, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, it's brilliant in so many ways because of that. Um, to an extent, Craven also wrote the film for Heather Langenkamp, who plays Nancy, right? Yeah. Um, she herself in in real life felt boxed in by the the screen queen title of 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 uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just a, a a meta way to express the actress's frustration yeah. at being Nancy, you know. Um, so it wasn't just reflexive of his own writing, but also of what it did for to to typecast uh, actresses like Heather Langenkamp, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think like Craven had a apparently Craven had a tough time getting Heather Langenkamp back on board to. To this film until he he described what the premise was, mm, you know, yeah. like she didn't want she didn't want to be just like oh Nancy ten years later, you know, she she wanted it to be uh, he want he explained to her that this was different, this was gonna examine what it did to my career and what it did to your career and what it did to and what the horror genre has become in general, and I I think that's what made Wes Craven's uh New Nightmare such a such a, such a special thing, you know, mm-hmm. um some people don't even consider the film part of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise because. It really isn't. Like, it's a it's a film about Nightmare on Elm Street. It's not a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And without Nightmare on Elm Street, which uh, and, and the new Nightmare, which 
created the groundwork which got um, Wes Craven's brain kind of percolating on the <laughs> idea of meta horror, right? Yeah. Without it, like two years later, Scream wouldn't have happened. And I, I think Scream, as great as, as New Nightmare was, Scream was the real culmination of what he had in mind with, uh, with New Nightmare. Like he, 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 New Nightmare wasn't a perfect film. There were a lot of flaws. Mm-hmm. Wes Craven really polished it all up, you know, you know took, took away the bad, emphasized the good, uh, what works and what doesn't in this type of new genre, what meta horror is, and then made Scream. And Scream, unlike all the other films on our list here, yeah. was kind of an icon. It, it was it was uh it was a seminal film that changed horror filmmaking like for real, you know, because it was so popular. <laughs> you know, um you haven't seen Scream in maybe two decades or a decade and a half kind of thing, right? And, yeah. and neither have I, to be honest. <laughs> I, I I I caught bits and pieces of it on, on channel five back in the day, enough to know what Scream was about. Yeah. And enough enough to know all the iconic moments in Scream. I had seen of it in out of context, you know, I, but I have never watched the movie front to front to back till recently and i did and i was really surprised by how good of a film it is actually mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. you know um i think scream really breaks down the slasher genre specifically uh in very smart and inventive ways it has a dynamite cast you know this was you had drew barrymore in the opening scene when at the time when drew barrymore was nobody yeah uh you had courtney cox you got david arquette uh a, a ton of ton of great actors in there and um yeah, so I mean, what do you think of Scream uh, upon watching it you know, now that you're an adult, you already know what it is uh, and stuff like that? Yeah, so I was really young when Scream came out, right in '96. Mm. Uh, you know, obviously not not old enough to be to be watching any of that. I do remember very very clearly that a friend happened to get uh, a hold of the VCD of Scream. Yeah. Uh, a, a, about a year later, I think it. I, I yeah, it was probably pirated or something like that. Uh, and a whole bunch of us went to watch it just because we had heard so much about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think from there, you know, that particular disc seemed to travel around the you know, circle, unfortunately, right, right, right. as the teens of the time. Uh, but I don't think at that point in time, when I first watched it, uh, mm-hmm. I understood how good it was, or yep. I understood why so many people were drawn to it and were talking about it. I don't think we had the vocabulary because our knowledge of horror filmmaking and slasher movies was quite limited like, yeah. in primary school, right? Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. So we but we I... don't really know what is unpacking. Like. Yeah, but at yeah. the point in time, from what yeah. I remember, or even like, sometimes Scream comes up casually in conversations when you're talking about horror, right? Uh, yeah. As you do. Uh, I don't think the audience at that point in time understood why they were drawn to Scream mm-hmm. in a way that we can't understand it now. Right, mm. uh, and upon rewatching this recently again, uh, yeah. it is really quite. It I remembered it differently. I, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, I I think after so many years and like kind of like watching the sequels uh, as as I grew older and never quite revisiting Scream, uh, mm. in and of itself because I've already watched Scream. Right, I want to see what happens next in two and three and so on and so forth. Right, yeah. and then having all of that parodied to death in scary movie. And yeah. all the subsequent scary movies, right? I, I think my memory of what Scream was was entirely diluted by mm-hmm. by um, what a ph- cultural phenomenon it became, right? And and yeah. the consequences of that. Um, so it was it was kind of like a breath of fresh air to just kind of like sit down and and, and look at Scream uh, Scream uh, with more objective eyes. 
Uh, yeah. And it is really good. It really is very good. Again, not a perfect movie. Um, yeah. but definitely like you can definitely see so I watched New Nightmare uh, and then I watched Scream almost immediately after mm. uh, and just to kind of like trace where where things were right just two years before 1994 right mm-hmm. and where Wes Craven decided to go with Scream right and, yep. and all and all of the future franchise from there the, the yeah. future of the franchise from there uh, is so fascinating right just mm-hmm. to be able to kind of see the decisions that he made he says like okay i had this a new nightmare this was good i think we can continue to work with that and then like continuing to kind of like uh move forward with that in scream and kind of like polish it up a bit so it's a bit tighter you know mm-hmm. like the motivations that are a bit more understandable um the tropes that you're playing on in in this particular section you know uh people already know the trope you don't have to explain it again let's just move on with that and see where mm. we can bring it to its logical conclusion. Like all those, all those strings was so fascinating to trace, you yeah. know, throughout all that. And at the end of the day, like it, it, it's it, it doesn't age well in terms of like you know, um, the fidelity of it or all of that. Um, uh-huh. And I think like in comparison to the kind of uh, art horror that we have today, you know, mm. uh, it doesn't quite match up in you know in terms of like the beauty of it and, and the cinematography of it. But damn. It's still a really enjoyable movie, I have to say. It is, it is. You know, one, one of the most iconic scenes in the film is, of course, you know, um, the, one of the characters uh, standing in front of, of, of Halloween, you know. They, they were all watching Halloween at, at a house party and explaining the rules of horror, yeah. what you can and we cannot do. Uh, and, and Scream is essentially that, you know, it's explaining to you the rules of horror, what can be subverted, what can be celebrated. Um, and it's such a great look at... At, at least the 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 nascence or the adolescence of meta horror yeah uh, this was meta horror if if new nightmare was meta horror at its infancy this was meta horror in its teenage years before mm. it really you know like it was starting to find itself uh, it was starting to really come into its own you know uh kevin the woods was of course in the adult years you know it it already knew what it was yeah uh, and and this this was such a great way to expose 90s uh, audiences uh, which I mean, no diss to the people in the nineties. I, I was in the nineties, but we just weren't uh, that into meta stuff, like, Because yeah. we just weren't. Uh, I I I was too young to have a vocabulary for for what they were talking about here, what they were unpacking and deconstructing and dissecting here. Yeah. So so I didn't quite understand horror. So I took horror at face value. I took I took Scream at face value. I took it as a slasher film. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when I first watched it. Only recently did I take. Scream as what it was intended, la, yeah. know, as a meta horror film, you know. Um, and it's it's so good. Even the twist at the end still still works, you know. The, the, the <laughs> find, finding out who the killers were and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It still really works. The, the performances are good. You know, Drew Barrymore in the opening scene, Connie Cox at that point, uh, was still in his first two seasons of Friends, wasn't really that big yet. Uh, Rose McGowan is in it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Matthew Lillard, Keith Ulrich, uh, Henry Winkler. You know, most recently he was in Barry, but he's had a long, long career. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Kennedy. Um, fantastic cast. Great premise. Uh, Wes Craven, at this point in time, really pushed met- meta horror uh, light years forward in just two years. Uh, you know, with, yep. with New Nightmare and Scream. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, yeah, I, I, I didn't quite realize like why Scream was considered the horror masterpiece that it is. Uh, and I think now I do. La. And I think the only reason I didn't come to that conclusion sooner was because when I watched it, we were both just way too young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and one of the things I was kind of thinking, right, is that like, I, I do feel that, um, it, okay, 
outside of being a seminal meta horror movie that we can now look back and say that yes, you know, Scream was important uh, yeah. for where we get our horror today. Uh, is I, I often wonder is it because we didn't a lot a lot of the time like pop culture didn't recognize it as meta horror, and Scream mm. eventually became a parody of itself that spawned all the very very lackluster horror that we got in the late nineties and early two thousands. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do agree that a large part of it is the misunderstanding of Scream. Scream was attempting to do what Kevin and the Wit successfully did, you know, revitalize horrors. Scream was trying to be that movie. It was like, you know, enough with the tropes. Yeah. Enough with the we, we know all the cliches, like you know, we are we are spelling it out for you yeah. in this film in Scream. We are telling you what the rules are, what what can be broken, what cannot be broken. Why are why are these stupid people investigating loud noises in the basement alone? You know that kind of thing. You know, it's telling you that stop doing this. This is the ultimate. This is the end point. We can't we can't grow the genre if we keep doing these things, like, you know. Yeah. But then because. <laughs> Because Scream was so successful, right? Mm-hmm. Once again, like Wes Craven with mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street, it got chewed up by the corporate machinery. It kept it kept making sequels that betrayed the fundamental values of the first film. Yeah, its its sequels <laughs> were straight were straight slasher horrors, you know, without any of the really. I mean, it, yeah, sure, it winked to horror movies here and there, but it wasn't meta horror in the same way that Scream One was meta horror. Yeah, um, Scream the Scream franchise became what Scream was poking fun at. And I think that's sad for, yeah. for, for, the, for the writers and creators or the first Scream to, to find the, the big studio system uh, chewing it up and then shitting out like a diluted version of Scream. Uh, not only a diluted version of Scream, like versions of Scream that outwardly uh, betrays the fundamental values of the first film. And, and to the point where you know, Scary Movie had to, had to parody what was essentially a parody in itself, yeah, Scream. You exactly. Know? So it, it really spoke to me that people misunderstood what Scream was at the day. And... and you know, I was a child. A lot of the people who were making this Scream 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and Scary Movie, those were adults, you know. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. they should have understood what Scream was. Yeah, and they didn't. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, it's been so fascinating to revisit yeah. these two two particular works, right? Yeah. Uh, it, in recency, with perspective, uh, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the, the gift of hindsight uh, and, and, like, the long kind of history of all the movies that have come since then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. I did not expect. Like, I sat down and said, "Okay, cool. I'm gonna watch Scream, right?" Yeah. Uh, and in my head, I was just like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna watch Scream." Like, I didn't make a big deal about it. But by the time I was done with the movie, you know, I I had a totally different understanding of where it stood. Uh, in in both kind of like my 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 personal like understanding of the movie and and when I first watched it as a as a as a teen. Mm-hmm. Uh. And yeah, so I if you have not watched Scream anytime recently, uh, or if you have not watched Scream at all, which is actually not as uncommon as I think it is, mm. um, please For give Gen it a watch. Yeah, 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 you know, um, please give it a watch, right? Because like it is, it's very sad what it became, but it is very important what it is, right? Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, highly highly recommend that. Yeah, man. I think a lot of Gen Z people may not be familiar with Scream, considering it is in the early nineties mm. uh, or mid nineties for for Scream. Um, but millennials and Gen Xers are very familiar with Scream, and I w- I will maybe encourage you to rewatch Scream, and maybe you'll get a different experience out of it. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, with with more knowledge of what horror is. Um, I I I think the problem with Scream, to to be honest, right, is that I always say this: are like, for example, take Hereditary, right? Yeah. 
hereditary works and Midsommar and all the art horror films, they work on an intellectual level, right? Like yeah. what, uh, they work on an intellectual level, but they also work on a visceral, take it at face value level. You, know? yeah. you have to work on both levels. You, know? you have to work as, you have to, you have to work as, as a straight film and you have to work as a meta uh, intellectual film. The problem with Scream, right, is it works too well on, at face value. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. if you want, if you want to not dig deep into what it's trying to dissect, right? You can take Scream as at face value as a slasher film, and as actually a good example of what a good slasher film is. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. you know, and and it allows you to ignore or disregard all the things it's saying about the slasher genre. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it's it's tr- it's problem it's a problem when uh you have that choice, right? Like, yeah, I don't think. Back in the day as a teen, especially, I was looking to, you know, be like, oh, wow, you know, I want my brain tickled by some meta horror. Yeah. Right. And I, I think largely for the, the movie going audience at the time as well, right? Like, there was no need to because one part of it already presented such a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I, I, it, it's an interesting uh, question how it's possible to strike a balance like that, right? To make mm-hmm. sure that you know you deliver on both ends with the, without compromising the other. Correct. Yeah, uh, I think Hereditary did did it well because you know people who did not want to dissect the deeper themes of mental illness, generational mm. trauma, yeah, uh, gaslighting things like that, right? If they didn't want to focus on that aspects of Hereditary. They could just take Hereditary as just a really great supernatural horror movie, mm-hmm. and it works. It works straight, you know. Yep, yep. And I think to, that's also to the detriment of Hereditary that it wasn't taken seriously because you know you can take it straight, so people choose to take it straight. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I mean, like just just to kind of ex- extend on that, do you think we've gotten a movie in the last couple of years where yeah. you can't take it straight, right? Like even if you wanted to, as good as the surface level stuff is, like you can't t- just take it straight. Get out. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. You you can't take. I mean, with I mean, Get Out came on the heels of. Keep in mind the first Black Lives Matter movement. You know, yeah. Eric Garner and all that. In case you guys have forgotten, post George Floyd, this thing has been going on for a long time, mm-hmm, man. Mm-hmm. And and in 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 that atmosphere, you can't watch Get Out without thinking about what it means. You know? Yeah, you have like society was at a point of a reckoning, like especially white people, uh, considering what complicity they have in this. Yeah. You know, uh, and you can't watch Get Out without considering the the underlying themes of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, Get Out works as a straight horror film. It definitely does. Jordan Peele is that good. Uh, but on a deeper level, people were were thinking about Get Out on a much deeper level. Uh. And I think Get Out was one of the first real art house films that really like broke the door open, like yeah. the dam suddenly opened, right? Yeah, after yeah that. for sure, for sure. Like I think you can definitely see that from get out onwards it was just yeah. i mean like everything a24 has been doing for example right yeah uh and and you know everything jordan peele is doing hereditary and so on and so forth like it, it's very clear um yeah you know at that as a marker whereby it spoke to the zeitgeist it was an amazing film in and of itself but it spoke to the the zeitgeist right it spoke to the moment uh and yeah. it was something that audiences couldn't uh ignore yeah. yeah. Because of his yeah. context. Yeah, agree. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the flip side also, like I think like something like Mitsoma works well as an intellectual exercise, but not so much as a visceral horror, horror film. Mm. Um, I, I think like if, for those who have seen Mitsoma, like, I love the film. But yeah. the thing is, I love to think about the film. Yeah. I yeah. haven't rewatched it. Um, yeah. Just because I don't think there's much to rewatch. But it comes up in discussions a lot. It comes mm. up 
in in talking about horror a lot. I, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I like to talk about it. I like to think about it. I like to discuss its themes. But I don't actually know whether it works as a straight film. You know? Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, the problem is like kind of like talking about these things. Um, yeah. Uh, is that we can't? There's no real separation. Like we separate it in our minds, but there's no real separation from that. But yeah, I don't yeah. think I would rewatch Midsoma unless it was to introduce someone to it, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, I'm not really sure if it's that. Like it, it works so much better in my head. Yeah. Than I think the actual experience of sitting there in the in the cinema to watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's not to take away from the, the technical genius of Ari Aster or the yeah, amazing yeah. performance of Florence Pugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just saying that it works better on one level than on the other. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, man. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm glad that we took some time out uh, this Halloween season, the spooky season, to talk about horror tropes and horror uh, cliches. And I thought the best way to do that was with these type of movies. Uh, rather than just talking about it you know, like an essay, mm-hmm. let's break down films that have already broken, this, broken these things down yeah, for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. been so fun. It's been so incredibly fun exploring these things. I, I think mm-hmm. like um, it, it's been interesting just to see this particular just a slate of movies that are being made available for people to watch during this spooky season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like being able to to watch these four movies as as just part of a uh, a, ca- a canon that has been established before. It's it's been super interesting to kind of like revisit where all these things have been in the past, uh, yeah. and what they mean to a lot of people now, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and to the movies now. And I mean, I just finished like Bly Manor, and I'm just like, okay, you know. Mm. It's so good, but you can't watch Blind Manor uh, without appreciating. I mean, you can watch Blind Manor without appreciating, but like I really appreciated these four particular movies um, more. Mm-hmm. You know, in conjunction with watching like Blind Manor and Haunting Hill House. Oh, definitely, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, these three films made by to me like the the, the three best people at subverting genre filmmaking. Joss Whedon has a long history of that. Shinichiro Ueda, clearly that's what he's trying to do with all sorts of genres, not just horror. Yeah. Uh and, and Wes Craven towards the end of his horror career started looking back at, you know, what worked, what didn't, what can we do with the genre in the future. Very interesting different takes on what horror has been and what it will become. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I mean, if you want to check all these films out, they're available on VOD. You highly recommend it. Some of them are, Kevin in the Woods, for example, is also available on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, so do check it out. Um, we'll be back for genre equality next week. Uh, similarly, <laughs> in genre equality, there is a lot of horror to be talking about. Unlike the four horror films that we talked about here, 99% of the horror films and TV shows released, uh, Blind Manor is the exception, released this November, this uh, October, are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> truly, truly, truly terrible. Like, like you know, one step forward, ten steps back. You know? oh um, it's, it, it's, it's very sad like, that I went through like this slew of like 20 different TV shows and horror films. Couldn't find a single, with the exception of Blind Manor once again, yeah. couldn't find a single one that was even like worth my time. Like, like five out of ten, you know, kind of thing. It's yeah. so sad. Yeah. It's so sad. People, people are just releasing garbage these days just because it's it's the season, lah. Mm-hmm. It's the corporate machinery. Once again, like you know, oh, Amazon needs a needs a horror film. Netflix needs a horror film. Hulu needs a horror film, and and all of them happen to be anthologies because anthologies are cool now. You know, <sighs> it's 
it's so frustrating. I, I, I was just very frustrated like, because like this particular genre took up more of my time than usual. Yeah. And like most of it was such garbage. Like I couldn't, yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'm I'll so get, sorry. I'll, it's okay. <laughs> like I, I, I thought, you know, you know, Halloween uh, season, I should probably go watch all these horror offerings. But man, yeah. they, they, they suck. Uh, but but I'll, I'll, I'll be getting into them individually on the next genre quality if you want to listen to that. Yeah. But you know, on, on, on a brighter note, um, we'll be talk- our main topics are Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. uh, which ended its season this week actually, uh, yep. with uh, with its finale, uh, Haunting of Bly Manor, which is very good as well, uh, and the return of Gandhi Tatowski's uh, Primal. You may recall we talked about his previous show, Samurai Jack, on this show, yeah, uh, and and also we've reviewed Primal season one. Uh, this is the the last five episodes of season one, and we'll be talking about that as well. Primal continues to be such a wordless. Uh, <laughs> such a great dialogue-free uh, animated series. Yeah, uh, loved it. So those are our three main topics, and we'll we'll talk about a bunch more uh, elsewhere after that. Uh, till then, you know, uh, this has been Hit Zero. This is Isa. Yep, uh, and catch us next week for Genre Equality. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.